What's up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I'm joined by Michael Green. So we had a little bit of technical difficulties during this episode, so bear with me. But Michael Green is ProfPlum99 on Twitter, who is one of the best minds, I believe, in the industry. He's all over Twitter spaces. He talks a ton about uh, just the overall macro environment. He's a great investor. He's got a big background and is his portfolio manager. Been in the game for quite some time. So his investing experience and experience in markets is, you know, outstanding. And so we dive into the overall macro environment, unemployment, housing, all that. So we get a full-fledged conversation. So be sure to tune in on that. And as always, ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening to this on audio podcast, please hit that like button, hit that subscribe, um, give it a five-star rating wherever you get podcasts. It really does help the show and allows me to get great guests like you're hearing right now. And it is not financial advice. Everything you hear on this podcast is not financial advice and should not, 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 not be taken as financial advice. It's strictly of the opinion of Michael and myself and not a reflection of our employers. So let's get tuned in for another action-packed episode. Whoosh. But before we get started to the next episode of the Macro Insights Podcast, I'd like to shout out my sponsor, Idaho Armored Vaults. It's run by Bob Coleman. He's the man. If you haven't heard him on Twitter spaces, you should check him out. But he has been in investment management industry since 1992. He founded Profits Plus Capital Management, which is a, makes him a registered investment advisor. And in 2001, he decided to start providing intelligent research, consulting, and portfolio management services to high net worth investors and institutions. Idaho Armored Vaults was founded in 2008 to protect financial assets and provide property outside the financial system from numerous risks, including systematic and counterparty. This unique vertically integrated structure procures transport and stores provides and also provides extensive liquidity using physical precious metals. So check them out at goldsilvervault.com. And give Bob a ring. Tell him Green Candle sent you, and he will hook you up nice. They've got the lowest margins of any single uh, gold and silver asset management company in the country. So be sure to check them out. That's goldsilvervault.com. Hit up Bob Coldman. Send him a DM. Get with him and tell him Green Candle sent you. Now, let's get into the episode. What is up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast. And for those listening on any podcasting 2.0 apps, streaming me sats, I really greatly appreciate it. I record at different times, so I don't read all the boost. But if you're listening on audio, uh, wherever you get podcasts, please, please, please hit that subscribe button to get these next episodes directly to your feed and give it a five-star rating. It allows me to bring on some outstanding guests. And if you're watching on YouTube, uh, please give this video a like and a subscribe as much as I hate kind of saying that and feel a little cringy doing all that stuff. It does help the channel. It does help support, uh, you know, the things that I'm doing and it is greatly appreciated and allows me to bring on big name guests as I have one waiting in the waiting room here. I got Michael Green, who I believe is cooking dinner right now. So Mike, how you doing? I'm doing well. And yourself? 
I'm doing I'm doing pretty well. It's a it's a great Tuesday night here in uh, Florida, so I can't really complain. But um, for those who don't know too much about you, maybe they've seen you on Twitter here or there. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background and uh, how you got to where you're at today. Uh, well, the uh, one of the funny things, of course, is that I'm not on video because as we were discussing before, um, I'm actually in a rental home uh, as I put my house onto the market to move out of California where I'm based. But the um, so this could actually be a, a an AI pretending to be Mike Green um, as compared to Mike Green. But but we'll see. We'll, we'll see what what uh, ridiculous things I say. Um, so my background, I've been in investment management now for about 30 years. Um, uh, initially joined, um, I went to the University of Pennsylvania, the Wharton School of Business for undergrad. Uh, once I was done there, went into management consulting and then into software, uh, started a company that was built around equity valuation, initially targeted at corporations, and then um, one of my mentors, a guy by the name of Mitch Julis, stumbled across our stuff and said, hey, could you link this to the public equity databases so that you could use it for equity valuation in public markets? Uh, we did that, discovered that we had a great tool for public equity valuations, um, came into the teeth of the dot-com cycle where, of course, nobody cared, but everybody was trying to understand what was going on. And so our software was reasonably well received. Um, that has set up an opportunity to sell it to Credit Suisse First Boston. Um, and from there, I transitioned over from the sell side to the buy side and began managing assets initially for a firm called Moody Aldrich Partners, where I ran small cap value funds, then to a firm called Royce & Associates, which at the time was the largest non-fidelity small cap specialist. Uh, we launched, or when I joined in 2002, just to give people an idea of the way the cycles tend to work, 2003, I'm sorry, um, uh, we were about 14 billion in assets. And by the time I left in 2006, we were about $52 billion in assets. So it just kind of speaks to this dynamic of the way cycles work and how styles can have a huge impact on your experience as an investor. Successfully navigating that uh, cycle gave me the opportunity to then transition to Canyon Partners, where initially I was brought in to help them manage equities. Um, but the real opportunity for me was to move cross asset. And at that point, I became more involved in commodities, uh, derivatives, et cetera. Um, you can hear dinner kicking on in the background. Um, and uh, from Canyon Partners, I then went and launched the Soros-backed hedge fund called Ice Farm Capital. And um, did that for a couple of years, then moved to manage Peter Thiel's personal capital. And today I'm the chief strategist and senior portfolio manager for a firm called um, Simplify Asset Management. We actually focus in ETFs that utilize the strategies historically associated with hedge funds and particular derivatives. And that brings us to today. So here we are. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems like you have a, a wealth of experience and, you know, you've seen various cycles throughout that that entire time. Obviously, you know, you just came in right after the dot com boom. You, uh, you know, we're, we're experiencing that kind of going through, um, you know, that that cycle and people wanted to know what was going on. And I feel like that's kind of a common theme of what we've got going on today. You know, people really want to understand what we're going on or what is going on in the current, I guess, uh, cycle, so to speak. So. Uh, I'll leave it there. I'll leave it pretty broad. So where do you think that we're at and kind of, uh, you know, how do you view, I guess, this uh, this current cycle? 
Well, I think I think you hit on an important point that I want to um, pause on for a second before moving on to answer the question directly. So one of the things that tends to happen is, is that when you enter a market or when you enter a market cycle, when you come in largely determines your experience. And so I was very fortunate in making the transition to the official buy side away from my software company, uh, which is what would be referred to as sell side, um, you know, moved in roughly nine months before the end of the dot-com cycle. And if I had been two years earlier, there's a very reasonable chance that I wouldn't have had a career because I was too young to know how to challenge the underlying theses in terms of, you know, what value investing looked like, et cetera. Um, and if I hadn't been fortunate enough to step into the front of a value cycle, I'm not really sure that I would have survived. Right. And so that feels like one of these um, somewhat silly things to say. Right. Inevitably, you're going to end up in the position that you're in. Um, but I actually really think it's important for people to understand that a lot of the people who have had successful careers and who have been doing this for a while benefited from stepping into a cycle that suited them or suited the firms that they began at um, at the right time. Right. And so luck always plays a role. And when you start talking about whether somebody's super smart or has a super deep understanding of something or has super success, it's really important <laughs> to think exactly as you're describing, have they been born into a cycle or did they manage across those cycles or, or did managing across those cycles fit their unique personality? And I think that's kind of, if there is a secret to longevity in the industry, it's that ability to either fully position yourself at exactly the right point or um, to be able to kind of skate across multiple cycles. And I, I, I consider myself to be the latter. Um, where we are in the cycle today, I mean, it, it, the cycles repeat, but at every in, in every cycle, there are patterns to the repetition that I would suggest allow things to look a lot like they did in the past. Um, you know, what happened or, what has happened so far in 2023, you know, I described internally to my team is, is basically we've had three separate markets already, right? We had a huge speculative run in early January that was powered by the riskiest stuff, basically a residual from 2022 where everybody sold the Kathy Wood stuff. Everybody, um, you know, decided that the uh, the answer in 2022 was very simple. Just get short Kathy Wood, um, get short Tesla, et cetera. Um, as we approached a new tax year, um, people aggressively sold all those, taking their profits, making it look ridiculously easy. And coming back into 2023, <clears throat> we saw people attempt to rebalance back into those strategies in the same way we saw in early 2000, the NASDAQ collapse and uh, small cap value really take off precisely because institutional strategies and lots of individuals chose to rebalance at that point. Um, that fizzled out very quickly. Then we had a you know, value cycle again. Then we, then we had a growth cycle, et cetera. Um, and today I would argue that we're basically in the safety cycle. And perversely a safety cycle in today's market biases the market towards the largest, most stable names. And that in turn powers the market higher and what everybody interprets as a sign that there is no recession, that there's a higher for longer cycle, that there is no imminent recession, that the credit crisis tied to the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, et cetera, um, 
it is just not going to happen, right? Um, it becomes really easy for people to say the markets have already priced it in. The markets understand what's going on. Um, Jim Bullard today came out and said there's no signs of a recession, right? Well, that's obviously absurd, um, but that's just Jim Bullard. Um, but you know, more to the point, like there's tons of signs of recession. There's you know, everything ranging from small business credit uh, availability that just came out a couple of days ago, et cetera. And this looks an awful lot like heading into the summer of 2002. Um, again, I don't think anything plays out perfectly, but I do think that's an interesting analogy because we had the bear market from March 2000, really September 2000, until 9-11. In the aftermath of 9-11, the market sold off hard. We then had a degree of stimulus and an injection of liquidity in the aftermath of the tragedy of 9-11 itself that powered the markets higher until the credit crisis hit. <clears throat> and we found out who had been swimming, you know, in Warren Buffett's aphorism without bathing suits. In that case, it happened to be Enron. It happened to be WorldCom, et cetera. The credit frauds began to implode in the summer of 2002, and we entered into a true credit cycle in which defaults began to rise, et cetera. I, I just think it looks so much like what we're looking at right now. It, it is, there's incredible similarities, everything ranging from the bid for safety, um, people's desire to buy things like Johnson & Johnson and healthcare and large cap, uh, you know, stable consumer oriented technology with the idea being that these are safe places to hide because those are the largest components of the market cap uh, of the of the market and because liquidity doesn't properly scale with market capitalization and defiance of the theories behind passive investing that in turn powers markets higher and um, leads everyone to say oh my gosh there's no issue while it's sitting directly in front of us right um, a little bit like driving off a bridge when paying attention to a gps right um, you know, the GPS says everything's fine. Meanwhile, the bridge has a clear sign that says, uh, you know, uh, bridge out, don't, don't, you know, don't, don't drive here. Uh, if the GPS didn't pick it up, you're going to drive right over, right over the edge if you're not really paying attention to the actual road. Instead, you're following a model of the road. Yeah, it's, it's funny you use that analogy. You know, it kind of pops in my head is that that scene from The Office where uh, J uh, Dwight and uh, Michael are are driving and, uh, you know, the GPS tells Michael to turn right and he just drives right into a pond where, uh, you know, he was supposed to, I guess, merge to the right opposed to uh, uh, just turning straight into that. But, I mean, it, it, you're, you're definitely right. And, I mean, it seems like there's a lot of cracks underneath the, the surface. It seems like there's a lot of lending that's going on. There, there's a potential you know, credit crisis, um, it, it seems. And, uh, you know, I, I think another aspect too is that, you know, I, I've seen personal savings go down quite a bit. Um, you know, we, we've kind of had the student loan repayment program kind of be, been pushed back, no interest charges on that. And, you know, just anecdotally, I know a lot of people my age or maybe a little bit younger or maybe around my age or what have you uh, that are, just putting that off until, um, you know, those interest rates or those interest payments kind of come back in anticipation that hopefully the government would, uh, you know, I guess, repay about 10 grand of that, that student loan debt. So, um, you know, I definitely think that there's a, there's a lot of cracks. So um, w when it comes to this, you know, you've, you've, there's been a lot of commentary when it, 
uh, about the overall economy, like how it's going to play out, whether it's, you know, a recession, uh, you know, how severe that's going to be. You know, they've, they've thrown out soft landing, hard landing, like no landing, all that kind of thing. So, you know, based on, uh, you know, I guess your experience and kind of the things that you're seeing, obviously it's difficult to predict, uh, you know, like exact timing or other things like that. But, you know, where do you kind of see this on the severity of a recession? Do you think that it's going to be, you know, maybe something as drastic as 2008 or maybe even worse? Or, uh, you know, I guess, where do you think that this lines up? Uh, well, I'm going to get the very unsatisfying answer that it depends. <laughs> um, and, and I wish I could say something else, but it truly, unfortunately, does depend, right? Um, the policy choices that are directly ahead of us will influence many of those outcomes. And unfortunately, the unease that is created by the current conditions influences the choices that will then be made. Um, really simple example, you know, a lot of people are unhappy about things like the bailouts of Silicon Valley Bank. Does that, you know, same way they were very upset about the bailout of Bear Stearns, does that in turn set up the conditions in which the next event people choose to, you know, uh, emphasize uh, that they will not engage in moral hazard, right? That, that policy is not going to be set under the dynamics of, um, you know, immediate risks. Instead, everybody wants to, uh, you know, be disciplined and show the way you're supposed to behave like this, right? Um, I would argue that that's a big chunk of what we're actually seeing from Jerome Powell right now um, is a general sense that, uh, you know, we, we have to break the Fed put, right? We've got to be extraordinarily disciplined in fighting off inflation and the only tools that we really have at our disposal, given that everybody will turn around and say something along the lines of, you know, well, it'd be wonderful if Congress could actually do something, but let's be realistic, Congress is not going to do anything, right? Therefore, um, you know, therefore we need to move to a model of uh, the Fed is the only tool that we have available to us for fighting inflation. So we're going to have to use the Fed and fight inflation with tools that are totally not fit for purpose. Um, so it, it, like, I wish I could say it in, in a, you know, in a, in a, um, less uncertain way, but it really is going to depend. Unfortunately, all the choices that I'm seeing are largely bad choices at this point. Um, ranging from how the Fed has chosen to prosecute a, an anti-inflation campaign to the seriousness with which our political leaders seem to be attacking the problem. Um, and, and it goes across party lines, right? It can be the Democrats who basically uh, refuse to take seriously any concept of how the money is spent really matters. And so we're off fighting you know, climate change under the aegis that this is the, the great and incredible you know, challenge of our lifetime. Um, as compared to the immediacy of uh, we we clearly need to make deeper investments in transitioning from fossil fuels to um, you know to greener forms of energy, um, you know. But the fact that we've chosen you know, the fact that we've chosen to fight both battles at the same time now means that we're simultaneously hiking interest rates 
and transferring more money to people who already have money. In other words, those who have money in the bank or those who can put money into money market funds while withdrawing stimulus that's used by women and children to feed their families. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've seen some of the data that started to come out in terms of the collapse in spending on credit cards and debit cards. And remember the things like SNAP benefits are distributed on debit cards. Um, you know, we're starting to see the data indicate a collapse in spending from households that had relied on those benefits to make ends meet over the past you know, year or so. So we're increasing the amount of money that we're giving to rich people and decreasing the amount of money that we're giving to poor people. And we call that responsible. I, I just think it's silly. And, and, and not silly, actually sad is maybe a better phrase. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, you know the the, what, the way Powell's ha handling this and and kind of the Fed. So I kind of want to dive into that because obviously you know you alluded to it a little bit earlier where you know uh, Powell's rhetoric has been higher for longer. You know the interest rates hikes at at, at a historic pace um, and all that kind of stuff. But you know it seems like what has been I guess caused is not necessarily all because of. Um, you know, monetary policy. Obviously, we we shut down the global economy for you know months at a time, and uh, just you know that in in itself have kind of made it you know difficult. And and obviously, we had a, an injection of liquidity in the market and whatnot uh, to kind of try to help that out. Uh, but it seems like it almost kicked the can down the road, so to speak. So um, you know, when when it comes to the the Fed and the the monetary policy that they're going about. Um, you know, I, I guess, how do you, how are you judging the job that they're doing um, just because of, uh, you know, maybe some of the, uh, I guess, uh, reasons I just laid out? You know, we, we've basically had four um, experiences of relatively significant inflation over the last hundred approximately years. You know, basically, since the, the uh, U.S. dollar became something resembling the world's reserve currency. Um, in those, those four basically boil down to directly after World War One, right, when we also shut down the world, the world and then reopened it to consumption. Um, world War Two, where we did exactly the same. And then the experience of the 1960s into the 1970s and today. Um, in the first two of those, we chose not to respond with interest rates. We encourage the economy to restructure, to transition from wartime production, production, in other words, you know, PPE, masks and, uh, you know, uh, vaccines to consumer goods. And we allowed the system to restructure in an environment in which demand was increased. This time around, like we did in the 1970s, we chose to try to kill that demand in order to limit price increases. It didn't work in the 1970s, and it's not working today. Um, the prior two were resolved basically within 18 months. The last two took, you know, the, the 1970s experience took 15 years. And this one, we don't know yet. Um, but it's taking longer than people had anticipated. And obviously, that's, you know, quite frustrating to a lot of people who are very upset about the dynamics or the use of the language around transitory, et cetera. Um, but if we had left things well enough alone, I'd say there's a reasonable chance that we might actually have experienced the, the transitory components. If you look at things like uh, general inflationary conditions for non-sticky prices, most commodities, et cetera, 
it's managed to reverse itself fairly significantly. Um, what has been stickier, right, are of course the sticky components, but we have some policy tool, you know, some policy metrics, things like owner's equivalent rent that is by construction deeply lagging. Um, and that has not yet moved in the direction that we need it to move. Um, so, you know, the, the question is, are we going to wake up three to six months from now? And as they attempt to turn the economy back on, presuming that there's going to be a recession, which, you know, everybody seems to see coming, although obviously the behavior in markets doesn't reflect it yet. Um, you know, are we going to are we going to move from that to an experience where we suddenly find that inflation is right back again? And under those conditions, you know, you could see interest rates, particularly at the longer end, begin to rise in the same manner, and, and the the default level of interest rates, et cetera, begin to behave very similarly to how it did in the 1970s. We end up with structurally higher interest rates and a very activist Fed that does things that people could never have imagined. Right now, like I'm still hopeful that at some point we're going to recognize the silliness of what we're doing, um, but that hope is is probably not well placed. Uh, we're, we're just not seeing any real indication that they they are behaving in the manner that we would hope that they behave. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and and it's interesting that some of the things that you brought up, like over owners equivalent rent and other things like that too, because I think. You know, housing, you know, from, from what I understand, is kind of, a, you know, a little bit of a lagging indicator. Um, but it seems it's like... It's not a little bit of a lagging indicator. I mean, the, the, the construction, housing itself, right, home ownership and the prices of homes is just an inherently um, transaction-oriented uh, uh, series, right? So if the price of homes falls, quote-unquote, and you see that your neighbor is not able to sell their home, and you choose, therefore, not to sell your home, prices don't fall because no transactions occur. What was unique about the global financial crisis was the same thing. And again, I, you know, I hate to use the analogy of the Great Depression because I don't think it's really accurate. But when people are forced to sell their homes, that's when you start to really see the price impact of this sort of stuff. Um, right now, there's just not a lot of forced activity going on. Right. We're in the early stages of forced activity in the commercial real estate space. We're seeing firms like Blackstone and others walk away from properties. Um, but the, the actual owner's equivalent rent itself, remember, relies on the rents of a rotating pool of properties. Those rents themselves have to be repeat rents so that you're not tracking something like the Zillow rent index or the apartment.com rent index, which is transit. You know, tracking last transactions and attempting to normalize against that, owner's equivalent rent does something totally, totally different. And by construction, it's gonna lag market activity by 15 to 18 months, which is fine um, in most situations, but because it just doesn't change that much, but it's terrible for policymaking, right? Because it's, it's, it's by construction, it's a really meaningfully lagging index, sorry. Bit of a diatribe there. No, uh, but that that's perfectly fine because that kind of leads me into to where where I was going with this because 
um, you know, obviously, as you mentioned a little bit before or at the beginning of this episode, you are going through, you know, home sale and other things like that. So I imagine you're you're kind of analyzing the market where you're at and other things, uh, you know, along those lines as well. Um, maybe in another market where you're looking to purchase. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, it seems to me I, I'm in Florida. So every market is, is somewhat a little bit different uh, depending on, you know, where you're at, the situation, neighborhood, all that kind of stuff. But just as like a, a general, it seems that homes are on the, the market for longer. Uh, uh, houses that have been on the market for longer are obviously dropping in prices quite a bit because those interest rates are rising. Um, is that kind of a trend that you're noticing as you're going through this? And is that something that you think is going to kind of continue as, uh, you know, maybe maybe we get along in, in this, uh, you know, potential recessionary time? Well, as I mentioned, my home is actually on the market. Um, and uh, fortunately, um, everything I just said was totally untrue. And any buyer, potential buyer of my home should rest assured that prices are robust. The market is very strong. It's a wonderful property that only a lunatic would actually leave. Um, and so uh, if you're interested, I can uh, work a slight discount to the commission on it. Um, that was obviously a joke. Uh, the yes, we're seeing all those dynamics, but the more important one we're seeing right now is, is that because we've not yet gotten to the point where there's significant loss of jobs, we're not really seeing people forced to make the calculus. Do I sell my home um, uh, in order to take a job somewhere else or to move closer to family where costs will be lower for me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All the sort of choices that we saw in the global financial crisis where the job loss came before the housing price decrease, right? If we were to, if we encounter, and I think we are going to experience some of this, if we encounter significant job loss and people are forced to make those same choices in an environment in which home prices are um, already under pressure, that's where it starts to get messy, right? And that, you know, um, that I would just argue that like we don't really know how that plays out. You know, uh, supply demand is is a very straightforward thing, particularly as it relates to things like homes. Like I'll, I'll be honest with you, nobody needs a home like mine, except for everybody listening in on the call. Again, um, very enthusiastic about it, but you know, it's not like selling, you know, dish soap. Right. Um, my house is very different than somebody else's house. It's in a different location. It's in a location that is in some ways benefiting from the chaos of San Francisco because people who think that they still need to be in San Francisco are trying to move out into reason, you know, areas of the country that are still relatively safe and relatively well perceived, like Marin, which is a, again a gorgeous, wonderful place to live. But ultimately, Marin itself draws from the San Francisco job environment. And so if things continue to deteriorate in San Francisco, it'll just get worse. And eventually you will start to see people who are forced to sell under distressed conditions. When they sell under distressed conditions, that sets the new price level in the same way it does in the stock market. And in turn, nobody would finance the purchase of, you know, let's say Apple stock currently somewhere in the, you know, uh, near all time highs. Um, if somebody were to flip that around and say, you know, I, I, I want to finance the purchase of Apple stock at 250 instead of I think it's probably 165 today. Nobody in their right mind would do it. 
well, no bank in their right mind would finance the purchase of a home way above comparable property values, right? So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that these things can reverse themselves and start to sell off. Yeah, and that, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, obviously, you're, I'm sure you've got a very beautiful home and, and everybody listening should should check it out if that's where they, they want to be. And, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, but and ignore exactly everything that you were saying before. But right. you, you touched on. Please I, ignore I, it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, you touched on unemployment. And I kind of want to dive into that because, um, you know, Powell has said that he expects unemployment to raise and. You know, last unemployment numbers, I, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but I believe they beat expectations, meaning that there, it was a little bit higher than the, the projected. Um, so take that for what it is. It was still a very low rate. I believe it was just around 3%. Um, so with that, uh, you know, as we've seen, unemployment kind of, uh, you know, seemed to hold strong uh, and not really uh, rise up maybe at the pace that, that the Fed anticipated or, or that the market did. Um, you know, do, do you kind of see, uh, I guess, the job market still remaining strong? Um, and, uh, you know, do you kind of see that, I guess, uh, maybe this more uh, gig economy kind of contributing to the strength of the economy? Or do you think that's just kind of a moot point? Well, so I, I think one, we're getting that we, we have to be very cognizant of the quality of data that we're receiving in the housing in the job market. And this is one of the things that you've probably heard me talk about at this point quite extensively. Um, you know, the, the data that we receive in terms of employment, it comes from two sources. The first is what's called the household survey, which is a phone call that is made to your home and asking you, you know, will you answer various questions about your employment? Um, and uh, somewhere along the line in that conversation, they're going to ask you for your bank account number and for you to forward $10,000 to a Nigerian prince uh, so that you can in turn uh, receive $100,000 in the future. Um, I make that joke because one of the real issues that we're having within the household survey dynamics is something not dissimilar to what happened when women began to work. Um, people don't answer the phone, right? And so when people don't answer the phone, quality Right. So the, the biggest thing to remember is, um, one, that, that the quality of data during periods of transition matter. And so now that we have a younger generation that has never experienced anything like polling surveys or people calling them on their phone and deserving some of their time because it's perceived as a public service, et cetera, we're seeing the response rates to these surveys absolutely plummet. And this is you know a very clear post-GFC type framework. But just to put it in perspective, you know, the, the response rates to many of these surveys have fallen from the high 70s to, in the case of something like the job opening and labor turnover survey, they're now down into the 30s, right, pushing the low end of the 30s. Um, it means that the data that we're getting probably doesn't mean exactly what we think it means. At some point, there'll be revisions to a lot of that. And we're already seeing this. So, for example, the Philadelphia Fed made the forecast uh, that, you know, 2Q22 was going to see a significant job revision to it, taking it down from basically a million jobs to something like 50,000 jobs. It actually turned out to be significantly worse than that, going from a million one to negative 250, right? Um, I think we're going to see a lot of that type of stuff, um, in part because there's also been changes to how we calculate the data uh, in other forms of the survey, so what's called the non-farm payroll uh, relies on 
something called the birth death adjustment that attempts to modify for companies that have either been created prior to the latest sampling um, or that have gone out of business. Um, you know, that birth death adjustment is contributing a record number of new jobs in the data. So either we believe that there's surging entrepreneurship, which is certainly seductive and tempting to believe, or we acknowledge that um, the data itself is actually probably misleading. And if you look at the characteristics of the data that's showing up in that birth death adjustment, um, again, it's just super subject to all sorts of dynamics and changes that people I think have failed to properly consider. Among those are things like changes to the gig economy and the requirements around reporting in the gig economy um, that mean that people who historically could get $20,000 worth of income without having to self-report as a tax-paying entity now suddenly need to report as a tax-paying entity. And so they need an employee identification number. Well, when you file for an employee identification number, guess what? That shows up as a business being created, a new business formation. If you happen to do that in industries that are historically heavily associated with hiring lots of low-skilled workers, things like food service, for example, or accommodations, then the BLS interprets that as, oh, there's lots of jobs that are coming and we're just gonna model them into the system. Well, guess, guess what you do when you start getting paid for an Airbnb or a DoorDash delivery job? You file in food services and accommodations, and we see exactly that, just an unprecedented. Ex so in, in early 2021, we changed the rules around reporting requirements. It used to be that you could, you could have up to $20,000 worth of independent income before you needed to file for what's called an EIN, employee identification number. In 2021, we changed that to $600. You probably heard about this in terms of Venmo, et cetera. Um, that in turn led to an explosion in the number of people who have filed for EIN numbers in food service and accommodations, DoorDash, Airbnb, because those are industries that historically have had a high degree of job creation associated with them. If I start a food service business, I likely need to hire caterers or line cooks, et cetera, at least historically. That in turn means that the BLS is now forecasting that tons of jobs are being created in these industries. And we see this in the leisure jobs, et cetera. Um, I just don't think those are real. I just don't think they're real. And I think we'll see them taken out in future revisions, but by then it's gonna be too late for the policy dynamics. Yeah. and, and it's Go ahead. No, no, no. You you go first. And I'll... Yeah, I was about to say, it seems like kind of a general consensus that these, you know, the reporting and unemployment numbers aren't entirely accurate. Um, so I guess, you know, if that's the case, and, and it seems like a lot of the data that, that the Fed is using to base policy off of might not be the best, right, as we're kind of outlining here. I mean, where do we go from here? Is there something that we need to do in order to, I guess, uh, you know, I guess, make the data more valid so the decisions that we're making based off this data can be you know off of some better data because it seems like you know it's just kind of a snowball effect where we're having you know worse and worse data and because of that we're making worse and worse decisions well unfortunately that's you know the whole point of government right is, is that the beatings will continue until morale improves um We've been through cycles like this before. So Paul Volcker, who 
is used as the model of what um, you know Jerome Powell is attempting to achieve. He himself was subject to exactly this issue. So if you go back and you look at the construction of inflation indices and the information sets that we had in the late 1970s, we saw a very similar phenomenon where at that time we calculated in, uh, inflation off of shelter costs tied to the actual cost of financing a home. We use the prevailing mortgage rate, right? So when Paul Volcker comes in and hikes interest rates, he raises mortgage rates. That in turn shows up in the inflation statistics as higher home prices, higher costs of housing, which means that inflation is higher, which means Paul Volcker has to do what? Hike interest rates, right? Which causes inflation to rise, et cetera. This is reasonably well documented. And it's exactly the reason why we switched to owner's equivalent rent. Right. And so now, of course, we have the unintended, you know, consequences of having made that switch back in the late 19 in the early 1980s. A decision that was you know, meant to help the problem and did help the problem by reducing the feedback loop associated with Fed decision making on inflation. We've now actually created conditions under which the information is impossibly lagging. Right. So so we got what we wanted but it doesn't really do what we thought it did. So, it, you know, this is this is just a never-ending battle that, that you'll always be fighting. Yeah. I wish I could say something else. No, it seems like a, it's a never-ending cycle, and it, it's uh, and it's getting worse and worse. But, you know, when, when it comes to a lot of these, you know, cycles, whether it's a downturn or, you know, even in an up, an up run, uh, it seems like there's always some sort of market or sector that does a little bit better than everything else, whether it's, you know, doesn't lose quite as badly or maybe even jumps up a little bit more. You know, you kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier in this podcast where you talked about, you know, shorting the Kathy Wood stocks and it seemed like growth investing was kind of the trend from, you know, uh, 2010s to 2020-ish time uh, where everybody was kind of jumping into the big tech name stock or crypto company or whatever it was. Uh, but it seems like there's obviously been a reversion to that and it's getting a little bit, you know, back to maybe the value investing principles uh, that, you know, Warren Buffett teaches or preaches and that have been, uh, you know, essentially kind of getting crushed when it comes to, to growth, comparing it to growth uh, during that decade that I just described. So, you know, do you see that kind of becoming a resurgence of sorts? Um, or, you know, do you see any specific sectors that you kind of like going into, you know, what, what might be a, some difficult economic waters? Uh, so I actually would flip that around. And this is one of these staggering statistics that I think very few people realize. What would you guess? I mean, markets, the S&P is up, give or take eight and a half percent for the year, right? Yeah. What would you guess the value factor has done on a year to day basis? Oh, I, I, I imagine the value now that you say it's it's been flipped around. I have to say the value is probably lower. I, I bet maybe four percent or so. So the actual value factor itself going short the glamour stocks, right? The most expensive portion of the market and long the cheap portion of the market is down 14% for the year. Oh, wow. This is why you're seeing guys, you know, not, I, and I genuinely don't mean to pick on Cliff Asmus. He's just a very visible proponent of the value factor. Um, you know, this is why you're seeing these guys in such short temper, 
right? Because that value cycle that so many forecasted just never actually emerged. If you pull up, um, just for the sake of argument, pull up on your screen, the Russell 2000 value, right? So in Bloomberg, the ticker is RUJ. You can do it in ETF form by pulling up IWN, Nancy, and comparing that to the large cap growth cycle, right? And so you can do that by pulling up, um, I think it's, uh, I think it's SGX is the uh, um, uh, index ticker. And actually, I can't believe that I don't know what the, S you'll basically see that there is no comparison to what transpired in 2000, right? And in fact, you know, the Russell 2000 value has been broadly underperforming now for an extended period of time since the start of the, the bear market in 22. And in just this last move is actually making almost new lows relative to the March 2020 lows. Now, some really smart people, guys like Mike Cow, Urban Cowboy on Twitter, um, who I've known for decades now, actually, I met him during the, the Asian financial crisis, um, you know, are pointing out the similarities. And I think there are actually some reasonable similarities in that we headed into the final craziness of 1998 led by growth you know, as people basically decided that the cyclical components of the economy were going into recession, even as that recession took what felt like forever to arrive, right? So people were calling for a recession from 1998 all the way through, you know, when it really did arrive in the aftermath of 9-11. And of course, you know, by the summer of 2002, when the recession really began to bite, nobody wanted to hear about it, right? It was, that, that clearly couldn't happen. Yeah. And, and I mean, it, it seems, uh, you know, that, that, that you're right there. And uh, yeah, I mean, it is kind of surprising. Um, but I mean, if you even look at things like, you know, Tesla at the beginning of this year, it seemed like, you know, that was obviously, you know, where people were kind of, I guess, pointing some fingers. And uh, that was, you know, one of the main Kathy Wood stocks, you know, take for, for what it is. Obviously, Tesla's, Tesla's a polarizing stock, but I believe in the month of January, it was up like over 90%. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, just like you're, you're saying and describing there, it seems like, although it, it, it thought it was going to be a resurgence towards, towards value, it, it seems to, the growth has kind of rebound and it's, it almost seems like th that the market is kind of calling for this, uh, you know, fed pivot, right? I mean, it seems, I think that the, uh, the market last time I saw was, uh, and this could be outdated at this point now, but um, that, that it was calling for 100 basis points uh, of a pivot by January of next year, um, which would mean rate cuts kind of coming back uh, somewhat soon. Um, and growth has kind of uh, taken off on that. Um, you know, as we've kind of gone through this conversation and kind of described, you know, where we are, where we're at and where, um, you know, what, what's kind of transpiring. Do you see this as kind of almost like a, a melt up situation, so to speak, where, um, you know, we're going to have a lot of, uh, I guess, hopium in the market where people are going to hope that, it, you know, it's going to continue to, to pivot and that it's going to be, you know, back to, I guess, you know, pre-COVID times where everything was quote unquote booming. Well, I mean, obviously, everybody would like to believe that's the case. I think the biggest thing that everyone's trying to explain is why, um, you know, one, unemployment or the rates of unemployment have not risen nearly as much as they have in prior down cycles. 
to trying to explain the behavior of the S&P 500, um, you know, under some general fear and concern that they're going to be missing out on the next stage of the cycle, right? Um, that was very tangible in the aftermath of 9-11, right? Huge amount of stimulus had come through. That was the first introduction of 0% interest rates in terms of consumer financing. General Motors introduced it in auto promotions. Paradoxically, it drove auto sales up to the highest level in history in the immediate aftermath of the 9-11 and that sponsorship. People piled into markets, right? Um, and the rally was incredible not dissimilar to what we've seen in the aftermath of, uh, you know, basically the lows hit last October. So I think there's a lot of similarities to that time period where, you know, people's general perception is like, well, nothing has really broken yet, except for the things that have obviously broken, right? The banking system is increasingly broken. The largest banks are attracting deposits. The smallest banks are losing deposits. The small business financing conditions have deteriorated sharply. So we're now looking at a situation where, you know, the number one concern for an increasing number of small businesses is can they obtain financing? These are not good conditions, right? These are not conditions that give rise to people saying, gosh, you know what I'm really hoping to do is build a new factory. Because they've already ex received a very explicit instruction from the Fed, we're trying to destroy demand. Who builds something new in the face of demand being destroyed? That's just yeah. not, you know, I mean, Warren Buffett may choose to buy when stocks are down, although the history would suggest that he actually tends to do the opposite, as do all of us, because we tend to be more cash rich at, as, as things go up, right? Financing is available to us, right? Now we're going to see what that looks like on the opposite side. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, yeah, you, and unfortunately, you, at exactly the time that I would suggest that market indications have never meant less because of the dynamics of passive, et cetera, it, you know, we have policymakers who increasingly rely on those market signals to tell them what's going on to the point that you can have somebody like Jim Bullard, right, say, I see no signs of a recession. Even as the unemployment rate itself has begun to tick up, as layoffs are rising, as credit availability is deteriorating, as the leading indicator in the form of the yield curve has been inverted for almost exactly a year now, you know, all the things that, that we historically have used, that we use with, you know, fidelity to say, well, here's what we should be looking for for a recession. You know, I think Lakshan uh, um, uh, Akuthan at ECRI has noted that this is the first time he's seeing the cyclical indicators, all the things that historically would suggest that a recession is here at the lowest levels in history, while every central bank is basically out there tightening financial conditions or attempting to tighten financial conditions, right? And the perverse language that we use around the words financial conditions, right, are if markets are going up, by definition, financial conditions are easing. So when people use the language that markets are going up because financial conditions are easing, they're simply saying it's a completely circular argument. Financial conditions are easing, therefore markets are up. How do I measure financial conditions? I measure them on the basis of markets being up. Yeah, but it but it seems like you know that the, the yeah obviously the the stock market and uh, the overall economy aren't 
exactly correlated, but it seems like that's, yeah, exactly. Like you said, when, when market conditions are up, everybody thinks that, you know, the economy is doing just fine. So do you think that that's just like, I, I guess a gap in between or, or that people try to, to correlate, um, you know, the two as, as doing well, and then maybe just ignore some of the underlying statistics. Well, the, the, the issue is, is that you have to ignore some of the statistics, right? It, I can't incorporate, I can't create a model that incorporates every piece of data because we just call that the world. And so we actually need to create parsimonious models by definition, right? Um, like it's actually, you, you cannot fully model every variable because it would require all the energy that, it, that that is available to us to do so, right? And so you would influence the model itself. You can see a crazy scenario, right, where we create an AI um, that needs to run off of tons of electricity. We'll call it blockchain and Bitcoin. And then we'll look at things like energy consumption and say that measures economic activity, even as the use of Bitcoin or blockchain itself is driving the energy, right? Not suggesting that's a direct case, but you can see the feedback loops that get created in those types of models. So we have to adopt a parsimonious approach, which means that people have to ignore certain features which features did they choose to ignore? The ones that didn't matter that much last time, right? But almost by definition, it's those features that are gonna matter the most this time, right? Because we put in the safeguards, we build the early warning systems around the old ones. We monitor credit spreads for financial conditions. We don't monitor the level of interest rates, we monitor, monitor credit spreads. Now a business that's going from financing costs at 4%, to 8%, if that's being driven by credit spreads, we call that you know, tightening financial conditions. If it's being driven by federal rate interest rate, federal interest rate hikes, federal reserve interest rate hikes, there we go, I got the words out. Um, we call that easing financial conditions. That's just silly. All right, the company's facing the same level of higher interest rates and potentially the same change to their finances. Did I lose you again? No, 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 you got me. Sorry. Uh, I thought you were pausing for dramatic effect there for a second. But no, I was. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll just call it that. Yeah, exactly, go. exactly. But but you brought up the, the banking system a little bit. So before I let you go, I want to kind of get into that because, you know, it seemed like there was a big outcry, obviously, with Silicon Valley Bank and that kind of blow up. But you know, when it came when it came to it seems like the bank was just kind of poorly managed. Obviously, there was an article that came out that said there was like 183 other potential banks that could, um, you know, have the same kind of, uh, you know, I guess, um, you know, difficulties as Silicon Valley Bank did. But it doesn't seem like that's that's going to be the case now. It seems like, you know, that I mean, obviously, there's still a potential of the bank run and other things like that. But it seemed like everything, the whole world was burning at that point in time when Silicon Valley Bank blew up and that everything else was going to come crashing down and the entire banking system was kind of toast. But, um, you know, from my perspective, it doesn't seem like that's it's heading that way anymore. Um, so how do you view, I guess, the overall, you know, banking sector, kind of the health of the banking industry? Obviously, you know, you kind of talked about uh, small businesses getting difficulties with loans and, and other things like that. But as far as the banking industry goes, how do you see that playing out? Well, wait, I just, I, I, I got to make sure I understand this. So on, um, 
the day where Silicon Valley Bank uh, was closed, over the next few days, as it looked, I'm just putting your words back to you, as it looked like the financial system and banking system was collapsing, the S&P fell 5%. Well, that's what looks like the financial system is. That that is, I'm just playing into the dramatic effect over here, because I don't think, I I think like, you know, just a general sentiment, at least from what it seemed like on Twitter, you know, and obviously take, take Twitter for what it is. Right. I mean, it's uh, just, it's the, it's the wave, right. When everything's going good and nothing could ever possibly go wrong or when something uh, shows some little sign of difficulty, the overall, um, you know, the world is burning and we're all going to die and need to, you know, go in a bunker or something like that. So, um, you know, I, I take take that for what it is. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it seemed like obviously it was it was one bank kind of blowing up. It was a regional bank. Um, it wasn't a huge, you know, overarching, um, you know, area of the, the banking sector, but it seemed to make a lot of headwind compared to when, you know, a normal, I guess, regional bank potentially blows up. Um, so, you know, on that do, note, do you know how many regional banks, do you know how many regional banks failed last year? Uh, I don't have that number on me handy, but I do know that, uh, every year since I believe the year 2000, that, you know, regional banks have just been de- decreasing on a yearly basis in the United States. They have. And so that would lead you to believe that they were failing, but that's not actually what powered that it was consolidation. So they were bought, not closed. Right. In 2005, there were no regional bank failures. 2006, there were no regional bank failures. 2007, I think there were nine. Right. Um, 2008, obviously quite a few more, including major players like Lehman, uh, Bear Stearns, et cetera, which are not technically banks, because I know, as we all know, they were commercial banks, um, brokerage firms. Um but many banks failed, Wells Fargo, WAMU, et cetera, right? Or not Wells Fargo, WAMU, um, uh, gosh, I'm blanking on uh, what was the one out of North Carolina. Um, uh, you know, lots of banks failed, right? And that. Three fail, right? Silvergate. Sink, uh, uh, um, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, and uh, yeah. what's um, what's the last one that uh, just failed? Um, you know, to have those three fail all within a couple of days of each other—that's a big deal. It's a really big deal. Has it been resolved? Sure. How was it resolved? The government stepped in and said, "We'll take losses above this level." That led people to put in bids for the loan book. Right. But remember that the loan book for Silicon Valley Bank cleared at 27 cents below its par value. That's telling you somebody's worried. And every short I know that was in Silicon Valley Bank, with the exception of very few who, who did a great job on this, was short Silicon Valley Bank because of their fears of the quality of their lending, not because of their exposure to treasuries. Right. And that that then again, goes back to this dynamic of fighting the last war. Everybody's worried about credit spreads. What about the level of interest rates? What does that cause, right? This is the Minsky framework, right? Stability begets stability. Lack of failures begets the perception that nothing big can happen. Everything's going to be fine. 
right? Until it's not. And then suddenly we'll, you know, return with a brand new model that says, oh, we'll never let that happen again. And we'll repeat a mistake or we'll make a brand new one. Yeah. And, and and I think that's a great explanation. And yeah, it kind of gives an overarching picture of, you know, what's previously happened and, um, you know, what's kind of going on today. So, uh, Mike, I've, I've had a great time talking with you. Sorry for the, some of the connection issues. But uh, oh, that's on my side, not on yours. I appreciate your patience with it. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. So why don't you tell people, um, you know, what you got going on and where they can find you? Well, the easiest way to find me is always on Twitter. Um, I'm at ProfPlum99. Um, you can go to the Simplify website, www.simplify.us. You can see some of the portfolios that we've created there, some of the products we've designed to bring hedge fund-like strategies to markets. Um, if you search Mike Green on YouTube, you'll either get a hockey defenseman or me or potentially a British uh, illustrator. The other two far more interesting. Um, and uh, you can check out in my Twitter profile, there's a link to my Substack where I put out a, uh, a weekly writing called Yes, I Give a Fig. Um, it's a reference to an ETF that I manage. And then the last thing is, is if you're if you're interested in very options centered uh, discussions, I put out uh, a note under the headline of Tier One Alpha, T-I-E-R One Alpha, A-L-P-H-A dot com. Uh, that's currently available for free, but is ultimately going to be moving into a paid service available primarily to institutional and high-end retail investors. Awesome. Well, yeah, I'll link all that in the show notes and in the comments below if you're watching on YouTube. So thanks so much, Mike. And uh, yeah, I'll have to have you back on at some point in time. So I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it and I, I appreciate your reaching out. All right, man.